We are continuing in our series entitled Truth for Life, and I want you to take your Lord's Day bulletin and look at it for just a moment with me. We have a motto at the Bible Church of Little Rock, and it's seen just on the front page on the lower left-hand side, and it says, Loved by God, redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Spirit. We are a church that embraces and teaches and defends the triunity of God, the Trinity, the idea that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and that while they are in unity as three persons in the one God, they have, of course as they have worked it out in history, responsibilities and roles. And of course, what God the Father has done is to plan a redemption for His people that was accomplished by Jesus Christ and was brought to us as individuals so that we could be joined together corporately as a church through or by the Holy Spirit. And so, in order to encapsulate those ideas and in order to proclaim the Trinity, the idea that God is three persons, yet one God, we have chosen as a motto, loved by God, redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to accentuate those roles and responsibilities. And we also have a mission statement. If you see it at the upper end of the page there, underneath the title, Welcome to the Bible Church of Little Rock, you see our mission. It is the mission of the Bible Church of Little Rock to glorify God the Father by enjoying and obeying Him, to proclaim the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, spreading His gospel to all peoples, and to serve one another through the power and love of the Holy Spirit. That is our mission. That is what we are all about. And in between the Bible expositions that we regularly provide for you as a congregation, having recently finished the book of Romans and just prior to entering a verse-by-verse study of the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, 1 John, I want to bring to you a series of messages that explain our mission through our motto. And in the first seven messages that I've given you, I've proclaimed to you the love of God and that we are loved by God. And this morning I want to take a turn to that second phrase in the motto, and that is the phrase, redeemed by Christ. Redeemed by Christ. And I want to take at least a couple of messages, two or three or four with you, to explain our redemption by Christ. Now, I know that there might be a sense that I would say something like that to you, and some of you might automatically begin to think to yourself, because the gospel, the truth of the cross, the truth of our redemption by Christ is so familiar that you would turn off your mind in a moment and say, yes, yes, I know those things. I'm very familiar with them. Are you going to tell me something this morning and in these messages that I don't know? Well, maybe for some of you that might be true. But for most of you, I don't think I'm going to tell you anything that you don't already know. But I hope, even as Peter says a couple of different times, I hope by way of reminder to refresh and to reinvigorate and to challenge you that the gospel is our mission. The gospel is what we do. Whether you're talking about a missionary couple who now live and reside and minister in Ukraine, or whether you're talking about a church that we prayed for during our offertory who reside and live and minister in Mormon country in Utah, or whether we live here in good old Little Rock, Arkansas, we need to be reminded time and time and time again for not only ourselves 
and for not only the opportunity to be refreshed and reinvigorated for the sake of the gospel, but for the opportunity to speak that gospel to others, even ourselves in our own sphere of influence, wherever God has placed us, in our homes, in our families or extended families with those who don't know that precious gospel or who have rejected it, maybe rejected some kind of a facsimile of the gospel but not actually the gospel itself, our workplace, our schools, anywhere in our sphere of influence where God has placed us as life and light to somebody who desperately needs the gospel. My wife recently had an opportunity to speak to someone who is not a believer, even though that person may assume that they are. And that person, even though Beth did not communicate to that person directly that she was a Christian, came to her and immediately said, I'm planning on divorcing my husband and I want to give your, want to get your advice about that. And I know that I have guilt and I have a relationship with someone else and I don't think the marriage should have ever occurred in the first place, but I want to know your perspective. And apparently she picked up on the idea that my wife was a Christian and she proclaimed that she was a Christian as well. And so Beth had an excellent opportunity to share with her the realities of how the gospel has definite implications for your marriage and for your life and for your choices and for your future. And so continuing that opportunity she will have and continuing opportunities I know all of you will or should have to communicate the gospel, I want to communicate to you that very gospel this morning. Now, I want you to know that we're going to talk a lot more about the gospel than just being redeemed by Christ But certainly that will be the touchstone for which we communicate the gospel, the cross, to you this morning. And hopefully you yourselves can have such a handle on the gospel, not just that which you believe, not just that which has saved you and delivered you and redeemed you from the bondage of sin, but so that you can be so gripped by it that you are able at a moment's notice to communicate the gospel to someone who were to come up, who, who would come up to you and speak to you about how to know Christ or make a decision about life, even if they assumed that they were a Christian, when after conversations with them, you would assume by their, their talk to you that they're not. And I want to be able to share with you so that you can have a handle on this very gospel, not so much for your own sake and for you to say, praise God, yes, that is the gospel, yes, I believe those truths, but so that you can be an evangelist yourself. In fact, we're going to be having an evangelism class. We're going to be at the latter part of September. You're going to hear a lot more about it. Byron Earls and Benny Riley and James Henrich are preparing this particular class so that you and I can become more equipped, better equipped, more able to communicate the gospel to others. Because frankly, beloved, that's why we're here on this earth. If you've heard it said before, we need to exclaim it again, that really there's nothing on this earth that we couldn't already be doing in heaven and will be doing in heaven except one thing. And that's proclaiming the gospel. So if that's the one thing that we won't be doing in heaven, and if that's the one thing that should grip us and arm us and excite us about the task, the mission of the Bible Church of Little Rock, it should be the gospel. It should be our opportunity to share the gospel, to communicate the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to others, especially those right around us. And so I want to present the gospel to you this morning. And I want to do it just as I have been doing in several of these messages by affirming three things. The gospel is to be first understood. The gospel is first to be understood. Secondly, the gospel is to be believed. The gospel is to be believed. 
And third and finally, the gospel is to be obeyed. The gospel is to be obeyed. And I think there's really another reason why you and I need to understand these three things about the gospel. And it is this. In 21st century evangelicalism, in local churches all around this country and certainly all around this world, there are multitudes of them, multitudes, many of them, if not most of them, who are preaching a gospel that is not really the gospel at all. It isn't really the gospel at all. In fact, even in evangelical local churches, as I've said, to say nothing of mainline denominational churches and other groups who don't preach the gospel at all, even in evangelical local churches across our land, we have often in a communication about the gospel, not really the gospel itself, but something like this, the benefits of the gospel. For often you might hear something along these lines. Well, don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to be with Jesus? Don't you want to have a fulfilled life? Don't you want to have a kind of marriage that works? And on and on and on it goes. And so, when you often hear those things, someone might be assuming that if indeed I'm responding yes in the answer to those questions, yes, I want to have a happy life, I want to have a fulfilled marriage, I want to make things work, I want to be successful that that, in fact, makes up the essence of the gospel, or at least the gospel call. Well, if you want to do those things, then come to Jesus. And, of course, our answer to that incipient message is to say, but that's not the gospel. Uh, Those are benefits of the gospel, and surely there's nothing wrong with wanting any of those things, but in all that I've just said, I have not communicated to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've only communicated what it means for some to say, I want the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, then someone, if they're going to be faithful to the biblical evangel, has to say, well, then how do I do that? How do I come to Christ? How do I have that kind of marriage? How do I have that kind of fulfillment? What is the answer? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? I want the good news. Tell me what it is. Well, that's what I want to do this morning. I want to tell you what the gospel is. And I want to tell you first in this way, the gospel must be understood. The gospel must be understood. And in order for you to understand the gospel, first and foremost, in order for you to understand the good news, that's what the word gospel means, good news, in order for you to understand and believe and affirm and enjoy and be enraptured with that good news, you've got to understand first the bad news. The bad news. And Maybe for some of you this will be new, maybe for some of you it will not, but I cannot overemphasize, I cannot overemphasize the badness of the bad news. It is really, really bad. There is a God and He is holy and He is to be worshipped rightly. And this God the God who created the world, as we have seen unfolded in these series of messages where I have described to you from the Bible, God the Father, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Yahweh God, He is holy. He is sovereign. He is, yes, loving and merciful, but He also has in that mercy And in that love and in that grace, a standard, a standard of righteousness, a standard of holiness that He commands every one of His creatures, those whom He has created, to follow, to obey, to stand by, to live out. And this standard has not been met. You say, well, how so? And I don't want for you, and if you want more instruction and more ideas and more teaching on this, I encourage you to go to that class. I believe it starts September 28th. You should go to that so that it would instruct you on how to be more encouraged 
and have more courage regarding the sharing of this message, the proclaiming of this message, so I don't want to steal their thunder, and I don't obviously want you to understand all of the theological implications of the gospel. That's for another time and another place. But the bottom line is, I think a lot of people are fearful of proclaiming the gospel to others because they think they're going to get something wrong theologically. And that's important. And I don't want to give you all kinds of theology this morning that bogs us down in the clear presentation of the gospel. In fact, what I'm going to proclaim to you today is something that I think even a little child could understand. Even a a, a seven-year-old, for instance, a nine-year-old, for instance, could understand this message very, very clearly. And if you speak in these kinds of terms, the good news is good in the sense that there's a Savior, but you have to first understand that there's badness, and that badness is inside of you and me, and it's because the bad news is really, really bad. You know, even in terms of understanding the simplicity of the gospel... We live in a world in which it is so far removed from that which Christians of old taught their young children about the gospel. For instance, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, listen to what it says. This is, this is for children. This is for young children. I recognize it's a bygone day, but this is what it says very succinctly and very well. God created man... This is that creator God that I told told you about. God created man and placed him in the Garden of Eden in an estate of purity and sinlessness and forbade him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now that, my friends, is very succinct and very well stated and very good as a starting point to understand and proclaim to people the bad news of the good news. Here it is again. God created man and placed him in the garden, the garden of Eden, in an estate of purity and sinlessness and forbade him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. That encapsulizes the essence of where to begin. When you talk to somebody, especially someone who might be especially irreligious, someone who might not even understand the basics of how the Bible proclaims who God is. Now you say, well, we might not have that dilemma in the South. Well, as I told you last time, there was someone for whom someone asked them, do you love the Lord? Do you know the Lord? And the person said, no one's ever asked me that question before. We're moving into a post-Christian era where there are a lot of people who don't know anything about what we know about and that we take for granted and that we lived with and that we grew up with. And so this is a good way. God created man. He placed them in the gar- placed him in the Garden of Eden in an estate of purity and sinlessness and He forbade them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. You can memorize that. You can say that in your heart. You can work toward the idea of showing people what God did. And in fact, go to your own Bibles in Genesis chapter 2 and I'll show you this. If you want biblical support for these ideas and not just somebody's paragraph, you can read these passages, begin to know them in such a way that you can share this gospel, proclaim this gospel with others. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. There you have it. He created man, placed him in the Garden of Eden. He was in an estate of purity and sinlessness. Verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely, what? Die. And how was it that they were in an estate of purity and sinlessness? Look down further at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Purity. Sinlessness. Adam and Eve had what you and I have never had and no other human beings have ever had, and that it was a true freedom of the will. A true freedom of the will. Look at chapter 3 
of Genesis. Verse 6. Here's the bad news. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the very tree that God had told them not to partake of, and that this tree, that very tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, implied he was standing right there, and he ate." And here is paradise destroyed. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were no longer living in purity and sinlessness. They were ashamed. They had guilt. Verse 11. Yahweh said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And here's the first blame shifting in the Bible. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So... We have the beginning of very, very bad news. Now, some might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I understand. That's that's bad, but that's bad for Adam and Eve. I mean, that's really bad for them. I, I, I feel so bad for them. I mean, boy, they really messed up, didn't they? I'm so glad I'm not a part of their number. Well, turn to Romans 5. If you think that what... Adam did in leading the whole human race into sin is not effective upon you. Listen again, read again what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, and we've just seen from Genesis how it did so, through one man, and who who is that? Adam. He stands as the head of the race. And what comes through sin? Death. And so death spread to whom? To all men. Because all sinned. Don't ask me to explain it. Even when I went through Romans 5 with you and we came to this passage and I spent several messages, I do not understand the corporate solidarity of the whole human race being of the posterity of Adam. And when Adam sinned, all posterity with him, even those unborn, and they were all unborn at the moment that he did it, are all plunged into sin, and it even says here, because all sinned. I don't understand that. But the Bible teaches it. That's what it says. You can't explain it away. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, right from the very beginning point of creation, it's there. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reign through that one man. And verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There is condemnation. And every single person who was born, including Adam's own progeny, his own sons and others, and their sons, and their sons, and their sons, all of the children of Adam, as it were, were all plunged into sin because Adam sinned. And not only that, but there are really four things that happened as a result of Adam's sin that we experience, just as Adam experienced. Number one, the guilt of Adam's first sin. Look at Verse 19 of Romans 5. For as by one 
man's disobedience, the many, that's all of us, that's everybody in the world, the many were made sinners. We're guilty. We're sinners. Now, notice it doesn't say we're guilty because of Adam's sin. That's true as far as it goes, but what does it say about us? We are sinners ourselves. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners too. That's guilt. Secondly, look, we've forfeited original righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, here it is, both Jews and Greeks, according to verse 9, none is righteous, no, not one. Righteousness is gone. Righteousness is gone. Original righteousness is gone. It's, it's, it's bad. This is bad news. And notice what, what comes from that, what stems from that is corruption, the corruption of our whole nature. It's the guilt of Adam's sin. Secondly, it's the forfeiture of righteousness, original righteousness that Adam enjoyed that he voluntarily gave up and that he plunged the whole human race into experiencing and then the very corruption of our own human natures. Psalm 51.5. Psalm 51.5. You remember that penitential psalm of David and that very, very clear word from him where he says in Psalm 51.5 very, very clearly about this matter, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That wasn't just the idea that it was from some kind of uh, sinful relationship. No, what he's saying is, in the very act of conception, because there are sinners who sin, even in the very conception of individuals, what is passed on because of Adam's sin is the corruption of their whole nature. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what it says. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of this very matter about our sinfulness as a people, as a human race. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Yes, dead in trespasses and sins. Remember Jeremiah seventeen nine, And the heart is what? Desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is evil. In fact, even in Genesis chapter 6, even before sin was to uh, accumulate in the world and become cumulatively even more wicked and more wicked and more wicked with more people, even in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Bible says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually? Yes, chapter 8. Yes, it is so true that his heart is embittered against God. Chapter 8. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jesus said, every man who sins is a slave to sin. If you ever sinned once, you're enslaved to it. And since David said you saw in my own conception that I was brought forth in iniquity, therefore, we're doomed from the very beginning. We're doomed. This is, this is terrible news. Terrible news. And here's even the worst part of it. Not only do we now have guilt where we have to cover up our nakedness, not only do we have a forfeiture of the original righteousness that Adam enjoyed, and not only is our whole nature corrupt to its very core, 
but we actually have sins that other people see that we commit that proceed from the corruption of our foul nature. It spreads all over the place. It really does. In your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. This is coming from Jesus Himself who tells us about what really defiles a person. He says, verse 15, that there's nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him, but it's the things that come out of a person. That's what defiles Him. And notice what He says. Verse 21, For from within, this is what's within the human heart, no matter what somebody says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. Now that, my friends, that's incredibly bad news. Now, of course, you might hear someone again, and maybe that very person in your sphere of influence that you're talking to, and they say, well, I know that's true of some people. But frankly, when you read a list like that, I've not done any of those things. Well, you can get them on pride, right? Just like the rich young ruler. I I've done all of those things. That's, that's the problem. We, we don't even realize how bad we are. That's the badness of the bad news. We, we've lost our communion with God. Uh, we stand under God's wrath presently and God's curse. We experience the miseries of sin in this life. We're going to die and after we die we're going to be judged by God and then after the judgment we will be dismissed to hell forever. Now, how many, how many of you would, would disagree with me that that's bad news? That's very bad news. So bad, here's the way Isaiah described it. Isaiah chapter 59. This is how, I mean, you can tell by the tears how bad this news is. <laughs> chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. There's not even a person who's in the badness of this bad news that God even hears. Why? Because their sins have made a separation between themselves and God. Remember Romans 3 again? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, my friends, that is that's terrible news. And even at the end, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, at the end, with the separation of the sheep and the goats, here's what Jesus tells the goats, depart from me. You go over there, and that's an eternity without me. That's, that's, that's bad. Now, I, I know you said that I said that I was going to talk about the good news today. Well, I, I know I haven't gotten there yet, but it's because in our culture we are so self-consumed and so me-centered that, that you have to do almost 50 minutes of the bad news before somebody can understand how bad the bad news really is. Listen to one excellent commentary on this, one Bible teacher who says, consider the breadth and depth of your sin against God and His law. In the Ten Commandments, He has commanded you to love Him with your whole being, to have no other gods before Him, to worship and serve Him according to His revealed will and not according to human imaginations, to hallow His name and His word, to set apart and keep His appointed day of worship and rest from your work, to honor His appointed government, father, mother, or anyone else that God has put in authority over you, not to murder nor hate, not to commit adultery nor lust, not to steal, not to lie, and not to even desire in your heart what God forbids. 
When someone asked Jesus what was the great commandment in the law, he replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the second, this is the great and first commandment and a second it is, a second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. According to the scripture, do you not stand condemned by God for breaking His commandments? You may have a clean police record on earth, but you have a criminal record in heaven. Furthermore, he said, this same God keeps a careful record of every deviation you make from His moral law. He takes note of every moral deviation in thought, in word, in attitude, and in deed. And when all of that is said and done, and we ultimately stand before this God, this is what is going to happen according to the book of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is unspeakably horrible news. And yet it's God's news for violating him for shaking your fist in the face of this holy God, for presuming that you have some righteousness in yourself that will be okay for you in the day of judgment. It won't. It will not. You cannot do anything to change your record. Only God can deal with your bad record. You cannot sneak into the court of heaven and tamper with the records. You cannot fool God into thinking that He made a mistake in judging you to be a hell-deserving sinner by pleading your external morality or religious activity. The court of heaven cannot be bribed. God requires that sin be paid in full. God's holy law must be satisfied or else God would not be just. Now, And only now would anyone really be ready to hear the good news. That's the bad news. And at that particular point, all of us are saying, myself included, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? What's, what's, what's God going to do? If, if, if this is the record about me, if I've got such a bad record, if, if I've... If I have this loss of, of righteousness because of Adam's fall, if I have this guilt in my soul, if I have the corruption of my whole nature down through every fiber of my being and the warp and woof of my very soul, and if I have actual sins that proceed from that corrupted nature, and if I have no opportunity whatsoever to clear my bad name in any way, what am I going to do? What, what's the answer? Here's the answer. But God. That's the way Ephesians says it. But God. In His riches and kindness and mercy, out of His sheer love for His glory to be placed on absolute, transcendent, universal display. He says, out of the mass of sinful humanity, out of the whole mass of sinful humanity, I will but shed my mercy and grace on those 
whom I want to receive mercy. The initiative comes from Him. And only Him. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is, this is the kind of good news that we can't crank up on our own. Look at Ephesians 1.4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved Here it is. Here's our phrase in the motto. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. He lavished upon us. Grace, grace, grace. You know what God did? In eternity past, because it says there, before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, the first and second members of the Godhead covenanted together, agreed together, promised together by the initiating plan of the Father that Jesus Christ would come to this earth as the incarnated Son of God, little baby, born in Bethlehem, a child of Nazareth who would come and he would live a sinless life. He would satisfy all the demands of all of God's laws, every one of them perfectly so. And he himself would give a direction and a vision for a new kind of love that was never known before, embodied in the person of Jesus Himself. And He would be ridiculed and scorned and flogged and beaten and sentenced to die through unjust trials. And He would not choose to open His mouth to defend Himself because... He was entrusting himself to God who judges righteously because of the promise made in eternity past that in that pact between the Father and the Son, he would come to the earth and he would die in the place of sinners so that he might redeem them, buy them back from the slave market of sin. And so he uttered not a word. He did not defend himself even though he was utterly and totally righteous. And in the end... He was condemned on a cross, declared guilty, even though he wasn't, so that you and I might go free. That impregnates the meaning, but God. He did it in eternity past, and there was an ordaining, decreeing plan that the Father would initiate a redemption of a people, a people who would be called out for His own possession, made up of Jews and Gentiles, and in the progressive outworking of that salvation plan, Christ Himself would come incarnated through the Virgin Mary, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who would live a righteous life and would die an ignominious death, so that you and I would have good news out of the bad news with which we had no power to extricate ourselves. None. That, my friends, is the good news. That is so good. Christ became a man, and He took on Himself a body, and He lived a righteous life, never being tainted by sin, so as to fall to it, but experienced all the temptations of sin, even to its uttermost brunt, because he never yielded to it. And because God's law had to be perfectly fulfilled, God had to be satisfied. He's not going to condemn sinners and then send them to heaven if there's not a payment for it. 
And since we could not die for ourselves, and since we had no capacity to respond rightly to the bad news, the bad record that is our account, God brought a man into the world who is in reality the Son of God who completed that record for us by living a righteous life and then dying a sacrificial death. That's the good news. And God's justice was satisfied through what Jesus did on Golgotha. That's what, that's what the cross did. It, it freed you and me up to be able for God the Father, related to the first phrase of that motto, to say this, I love you. I love you. Because heretofore, before Christ, God's in a hating relationship with sinners, condemning them forever because they stand condemned, but in our place condemned He stood. In our place condemned He stood. So that you and I would not stand in the judgment day attempting to rationalize and satisfy a holy God with an unholy person with a bad record because of a bad heart with corruption and the sin which proceeds from it so that we could stand before God and assume that somehow that there's something inherent within us that would give us some semblance of righteousness so that God would be satisfied. He will not. And He will punish sin, every sin, every thought, every attitude, every action, every deed. And when He does, for those who stand rightly, justly, righteously in heaven, it will be because all of those unrighteous acts, all of that corruption, all of that guilt has been born through the cross of Jesus and His death for us. That's why 1 Corinthians 4 says, I share with you as of first importance. First importance. There isn't anything else more important than this. Here it is. This is what God says. The gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, attesting, of course, to his resurrection. This is the gospel. That's the good news. That, that is so good. For your sinfulness, you have his righteousness. For your guilt, you have Christ's death applied to your account. For your record of death to be removed, it is Christ alone who takes the punishment of the wrath of Almighty God. And He takes it upon Himself. And He endures it for us. So that ultimately we stand in the judgment in Christ. Through Christ. So that Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel that must be understood. And yet, as, as beautiful as that sounds, as good as the good news really is, even the good news that delivers us from the bad news, even that will not be true of any of you. It will not be true of you or me until this. The gospel is to be believed. The gospel is to be believed. You say, well, what do I do? You have me on the edge of my seat. What do I do? Just believe? Just some kind of mere mental assent? Uh, some kind of, uh, well, I, I grew up in the church and I, I've always believed that and, and uh, I've always given my, my money to the church and I always 
pray, especially when I get in trouble, and I read my Bible as, as, as much as I can at least a couple of times a year, and I, I do everything that I can. So, of course I believe. Oh, my friends, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. If that's what you're trusting in, and indeed, if you're trusting in your belief that Jesus is those things, you're on the wrong road. You're on the wrong road. That's, that's the road to destruction. It's not you believing in your belief. Believing has an object, and the object is Christ. And what you're believing is, is not just bare mental assent. It's that you entrust your soul. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I what? I cling. It's, it's none of my righteousness. In fact, I realize that all my righteousness is, is a filthy rag. It's a polluted garment. It's not something that I can put in my credit column. It's actually all of this righteousness that, like Paul, I've done for years and years and years, that's actually condemned me. It's in my debit column. I can't use any of that. In fact, it's all that which is going to ultimately condemn me because it's going to be me trying to proclaim my righteousness. So what I do is I shuck all that. I jettison those things for the sake of believing that Jesus died in my place. That's, that's what I believe. That, that's how I entrust my soul to God. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of works. It's through believing in the object of my believing and the object is the only saving, valid object in the world, and it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now someone says, okay, I'm there, I'm there, I believe that. I've got the fire insurance, I'm on my way to heaven. Oh, there's another aspect to the gospel, and don't ever let anybody tell you it isn't. It's repentance. It's repentance. That's a big word, it just means turn, to turn you remember the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, it's a turning away from something and it's a turning toward something else. I turn from my sin. I turn from my bad record. I don't use it anymore. I don't presume that it's valid. In fact, I know how invalid it really is. In fact, I have to get away from it as much as possible. It's not my church attendance. It's not my giving. It's not my prayers. It's not my alms. It's not anything I do in life. It is only by the cross of Christ and I believe in Him and I see Him as the only object of my faith and now what I must do according to the Bible, Acts 11, 18, 1 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, I say to God, I'm turning from my sin. Someone says, that's a work. That's a, that sounds like a work. I mean, it's something you're doing. You're turning. Guess what? Acts eleven eighteen even calls repentance a gift. Even the Gentiles have been granted, gifted, the repentance that leads to life. Oh Lord, if you would but grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of yourself, faith and repentance, my friends, even in and of themselves, although they are required, are themselves gracious gifts. You say, well, that's confusing to me because preachers like you demand, command that we must Believe and repent. Yes, we command it because God commands it. But guess what? You don't have any capacity to respond to it. None. None whatsoever. Why? Because I have this corrupted heart. Because I have no ability to respond. It's like going to a dead carcass, uh, a dead person, and I'm poking and pushing and prodding and saying, Live, live, live. There's no stimuli there. None. Frick a dead man, what happens? Nothing but deadness. So what needs to happen? I mean, this is, this is a dilemma even within the good news that's supposed to deliver me from the bad news. Guess what? Not only is repentance and faith a gift, but so is regeneration. Regeneration. Remember Nicodemus, John 3? Jesus said, you must be born again. And he says, 
Yes, yes, but how can I go into my mother's womb a second time? And he says, Nicodemus, this is my translation, you don't really know what you're saying. Here's what you need. You need the washing of regeneration. Ezekiel, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what Ezekiel said? Here's what Ezekiel said. There is in the heart of man a heart of stone, deadness. No spiritual life, no stimuli, no way to raise it from the dead. And the hardness and the stoniness of the heart needs to be replaced, Ezekiel says, with a heart of flesh, a soft heart. I want to repent, John Newton says, and I want to do it oft. But I need Jesus to make it soft. See, that's what we need. So what you do is you believe and repent, and if it's genuine and you're doing it, then it gives evidence that regeneration has occurred in your life. That's why 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 is so important in this regard. This is what it says, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, see there's the believing, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, notice this, has been born of God. Don't miss that verbal idea. Don't miss that has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. There's a different way of saying that. But it's being said the way it's being said, because I must be born again. I must have the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to bear upon my life, to open my eyes, to unstop my ears, so that I can believe and repent And you say, which comes first? I don't know. I don't know. It sure seems to me that regeneration has to come before anybody who does anything since they're dead. But it might be like this. Regeneration, believing, repenting. Boom, boom, boom. God opens the eyes and I believe and repent. It happens in spiritual nanoseconds. And you know what the Bible calls that as a package? Conversion. Conversion. You're converted to Christ. That's, that's what it means. The gospel is to be believed. You say, how can I believe? Well, you've got to repent. Well, how can I repent? You have to be born again. Well, how can I be born again? That's what God does. He says, right in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, this is, this is what God says. This is, I, I don't understand how people miss it to the degree that they do. This is what it says. John 1, 13 Children of God who were born, not of blood, it's not your race, nor of the will of the flesh, that's not you doing it on your own and your human capability, nor of the will of man. It can't be done just because you think it can be done. With man this is impossible. Here here is how it is done, but of God. It's God's work. And out of that mass of sinful humanity... God chose, if you're a Christian, to set His love upon you and it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with God's kindness and grace. And He takes His sheer, unadulterated grace and mercy and He lavishes it upon you and me and He says, I am opening your heart like like Lydia. He opened her heart to understand the things of the gospel. You you need your heart opened. And if you've had your heart opened and you believe and you repent and you say, I know Jesus Christ, I know that I know and I know I'm not condemned, it gives evidence that you have been born of God. Now, somebody's going to say, as we close, even this. Well, and this is tragic. After even everything that I've shared, this is the tragic part. I don't believe. I, I don't believe that. I will not believe that. Don't, don't manipulate me. Don't coerce me into believing that. Don't think because of persuasive words of wisdom you're going to make me think that. I'm not going to think that. Don't tell me that I can't trust in my own will, my own blood, my own flesh. I'm going to get there. Hook or by crook, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Nobody's going to tell me differently. And I don't believe that. And I disregard it. Well, my friends, the gospel is to be obeyed. This is, this is not an option. This is not an option. Do you remember in John chapter 3, right after this Nicodemus account, 
John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You must obey. You must obey the gospel. And of course, someone's going to say, but wait, you know, you just, you've just been talking for several messages, especially the last one, about the love of God and the, the grace of God and the mercy of God. And now you've got a frown on your face and, and now you're telling us about the bad news and, and then you told us about the good news and I thought that I was going to be delivered from a bad news, but then you told me that very word that I don't like hearing and that's obedience. Because I want to do things my way. I'm not going to obey this. The Bible says, if you do not obey, you will not see life. There is no other way. This is the way. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And there is no other way to be saved. We'll close with this. 2 Thessalonians 1. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Don't miss this. When the Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, is, re- is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those, listen to this, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is a matter of obedience. This is not just a matter of you saying, I'm going to think about it. You haven't yet convinced me. But if I ultimately choose in this consumerist mentality that we have in the United States of America, that if I choose Jesus, that's great. If I don't choose Jesus, I'm still on the road to heaven because, as Oprah Winfrey herself said, it isn't just Jesus that's the only way. And she says that as a person who purports herself to be a Christian. You can't tell me it's just Jesus. You can't tell me it's just His way. This is what Jesus says. If you do not obey the gospel, flaming fire, inflicting vengeance will come upon you. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from, from the glory of His might. That's the Word of God. That's the Word of God. And the gospel, it, it, it must be understood. You've got to understand, it's not just warm and fuzzy, it's about Jesus. It's not just church attendance. It's not just growing up as a church-going person. It's not just a philanthropist. It's not just somebody who says, I'm in because of what I do. You've got to understand, it's not even just the benefits of the gospel. Everybody would say they want to go to heaven. Everybody would say that they want a happy life. Everybody would say they want the kind of marriage that they can get along in. Everybody wants those things. That's not the gospel. Those are the benefits thereof. It has to be understood. And it's Jesus Christ dying on a cross for sinners who don't deserve to be saved but are saved because of the mercy of God given us through Christ. And it's got to be believed. It's got to be believed. You have to repent. You have to turn. And if you don't turn, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, your disobedience will land you in an eternity without Christ. Don't go there. Bow together with me. Father, this is such a sobering word. And yet, the very deliverance from it is truly, honestly, rejoicingly good news. Lord, it's just in our culture, as you know infinitely more than we do, our consumerist mentality, I can choose Christ or I can choose this religion or my own man-made, made-up religion or I can do whatever I want. I can even delay this gospel call upon my heart. Oh, Lord, deliver us from the culture that seems 
to be so jaded as to the importance, the first importance, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, raised again, ascended back to the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, He'll separate the sheep and the goats and we don't want to be in the goats' number. We don't want to hear you say, depart from me, I never knew you. We don't even want to do it if you say that and we say, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not cast out demons in your name and did we not perform mighty miracles in your name and he will say to me, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, you you lawless people. Oh, Lord. We acknowledge that we have sinned in Adam. We acknowledge the guilt of our condition, the corruption of our nature, the loss of righteousness, the sins that proceed from our lives and our natures. We we acknowledge it, we admit it, and we turn from them. And we believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we obey. We obey the gospel. It's a command to be obeyed, not an option to be trifled with. And we do so for the glory and honor of God and for the salvation of ourselves. And we do so because you have said, I call upon men everywhere to repent. And you are our Lord. And we submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.